these two figures that we look at, the um, indigene and the refugee, and the way in which settler sovereignty actually, um, you know, um, desires or produces the debts of these two figures. Um, and so this, the site is kind of intersectional in a number of ways. It looks at the intersections of the ways in which these debts are produced by the settler state. But it's also intersectional in the way that it looks across settler states. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we're coming back with one more episode of our uh, regular uh, show of, of the Phenomenist podcast. And I have two guests, uh, Suvendrini Pereira and uh, Joseph Pugliese, uh, who are both co-founders of uh, the platform Deathscapes that we will talk about today. And we're doing so... Um, uh, in parallel of uh, our current uh, issue of the Phenomenist magazine on the desert, in which Deathscapes has a, has a small contribution, but a, a much bigger one than what's visible uh, to most readers, as uh, they very generously um, put us in touch with Jane Turner, with whom we had a, a long interview featured in the magazine. Uh, so I'm very grateful to, to that. Uh, hello, Suvandrini. Hello, Joseph. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, last time we met uh, was in 2019 in Melbourne, in Norm, uh, for the Black and Palestinian uh, Solidarity Conference, um, which is where you already presented Deathscapes that I personally knew a little bit about because uh, one of our former contributors, uh, Michel Bui, uh, uh, is one of the one of the team member uh, as well. So uh, it's been uh, it's been really great to be able to stay close to uh, what you've been doing. Perhaps as a very very first introductory question, the mo comes the most obvious one. Can you can you tell us what Deathscapes is? Yes. So Deathscapes is. Um a project that we started in 2016, and I should say it was funded by the Australian Research Council. And it's a project that uh, maps debts in custody, um, debts of indigenous people and debts of refugees in custody across settler states. And the settler states that we um, 
look at are um, the US, um, Australia, um, Canada to a degree, and also we look at um, these deaths in custody in Europe as uh, the foundational uh, site of these uh, settler states. Uh, wonderful. So let's let's maybe talk a little bit more uh, on of the methodology itself, uh, because I think it's it's truly remarkable, and that make that's what also makes Deathscape a, a very special and specific project. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the the main points to always respect in that methodology in the investigation of a person's death in detention. Um, we'll talk about the deontology and respect around death itself in just a moment. But um, besides this, one of the points that seems clear to me is your deep care to relate each punctual event that you're investigating to the structures that provide, provided, and in particular the colonial structures that provided its conditions to happen. Uh, could you could you perhaps talk about that and why it seems so crucial to you to do this always this balancing act between the punctual and the structural? So um, the, there, there were two things. What we, as Savendi said, we, we were looking at a number of settler states um, in the context of deaths in custody, both at the border and um, uh, in, in internally to, to, to the nation's settler state. And we have to say um, one of the what we think is one of the innovative aspects of Deathscapes is that we make a connection between two seemingly absolutely separate sorts of deaths in custody, refugees and asylum seekers at the border and Indigenous deaths in custody within the settler state. Yet what the whole project really pivots on is the way in which a settler state, by definition, usurps, it steals Indigenous sovereignty, The only way in which it can legitimate its sovereignty is precisely by militarizing the border. No sovereignty over the border, no nation state. Simple. So that predication really structures the way in which two seemingly really separate sorts of deaths are intimately connected through regimes of settler violence. What we were interested in doing was to look at the way in which that sort of structural violence stages transnational iterations across different settler states. So we, were what, we wanted to begin to articulate, if you like, the patterns of necrological power that were operating across those diverse states. Simultaneously, though, we were very reflexive of the fact that what we didn't want to do was to begin to reduce the harrowing stories of these deaths to statistical cases purely forensic cases that reproduces, reproduced a status vision of what was unfolding here. So those sorts of alarm bells, if you like, really shaped the way in which we approached how we were going to unfold what were structural patterns of state violence without reproducing the symbolic levels of state violence in the representations of these incidents of state violence, such as deaths in custody. So there was a sense of being really cautious about how we were going to approach this, as you said, respectfully for the dead and the survivors, the families, the loved ones who uh, remain after the fact of a death in custody. So we, we can talk some more about that if you want. So, um, Savendi, do you want to 
chime in there? Yeah. I just wanted to say, you know, just pick up, uh, elaborate a little more on the on the point you made about these two figures that we look at, the um, indigene and the refugee, and the way in which settler sovereignty actually, um, you know, um, desires or produces the debts of these two figures. Um, and so this, the site is kind of intersectional in a number of ways. It looks at the intersections of the ways in which these debts are produced by the settler state. But it's also intersectional in the way that it looks across settler states. Um, so we actually, you know, the, this is the reason that we connect I mean, we might get to this a bit more in detail later, but the whole point of the site is that it crosses categories, it crosses, um, uh, you know, borders uh, between states, between figures in these states through looking at technologies of state violence. And um, I think maybe if, if you'd like us to be a bit more specific and tie it back to the Mr. Ward uh, case that um, you know you've, you've examined in your in your special issue. Um, then we develop these categories that actually carry across different uh, forms of state violence. So one of the categories that um, we came up with when we were looking at the case of Mr. Ward is that of necrotransport, the way in which. Um, in, in the case of Mr. Ward, he, he was transported in a, in a prison van that, you know, was um, contracted uh, by a private contractor, which was responsible for his death. But necrotransport is also a term that we can use to talk about the forms of transport in which uh, refugees try to cross um, into these settler states, the boats in which people um, cross into Europe, for example, cross the borders of Europe. Um, and another category that we developed was weaponized exposure, the way in which uh, the state, the settler state exposes uh, people to death in forms that, in forms that seem to be um, uh, caused by natural forces like the ocean or the desert or the heat. But in fact, uh, it's the harnessing of these elements by the state to lethal ends. Um, that, uh, you know, so the, these, are the, these are some of the ways in which we attempt to um, analyze across borders and across categories. Thank you. Um, well, and to... To continue in, in that vein, and, and as mentioned earlier, w one other striking point in Dayscape's investigation is, uh, in my opinion, the profound respect you make sure to practice with regards to the gravity of the situation described. Uh, you know, we, we just talked for five minutes, but the word death kind of came back already quite a few times. And so someone, someone has died, um, this person, um, as well as their relatives, their community, uh, their nation, uh, in the case of uh, indigenous people. 
um, should be honored and not violated in any more ways than they already have been and, and that they can be sometimes in this sort of for, forensic, uh, what you were describing, Joseph, as a, the, the sort of state forensics. Um, and so you, you have some protocols, I suppose, I don't know if you would agree with that terms, that you use in order to make sure that this respect is, uh, is optimal. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, people who do not live in Australia might not know that, but uh, uh, one very elementary um, component of respect towards, uh, towards someone who has died is to warn people that uh, in the following conversation, uh, there will be a mention of, of someone who has died. Uh, which seems like a very sort of almost a degree zero of decency, if if we may if we may call it like that. Similarly, the the first name sometimes is uh, is is also um, uh, eluded as to not increase the the pain for the relatives of of the person who died. Uh, on the website, you also created this what you call the courtyard to allow for uh, visitors who have been affected by the, the pain and sorrows that um, this investigation uh, deal with to, to take like a restful pose in their reading, a, a musical one. Um, so could you, could you perhaps tell us about this very, very important aspect of things that sometimes is a little bit missing from similar projects that deals with the deaths of people from an exogenous perspective? Um, I think that, yeah, that's, that's really something I would like to learn from, from you, essentially. I, I think one of the things that really drove us was the fact that when we were looking at uh, other sites that were dealing with death, whether it was in custody or not, was our dis sense of discomfort and unsettledness, so to speak, precisely because there was an evisceration of the trauma precisely because of the academic demand to disembody affect from systems of representation, because in a sense that disrupts, if you like, academic authority. So we made a really conscious choice to use affective language that actually did justice to the harrowing emotional dimensions of those who underwent the deaths, but also those who survived them and have to deal with the aftermath of the deaths. So there was a conscious choice not to reproduce that objectifying, detached, if you like, authoritative language that reduces a death to either a statistic or uh, an objectified entity, um, such as, you know, they do in the coronial inquests. And both Savendi and I attended and recorded and reported on uh, coronial inquests. So that was one of the key things. And we can talk a bit later how we amplified that notion of the affective dimensions of death precisely by invoking a whole series of, um, if you like, not strictly academic testimonies, poetry and art practice. But that's something we can talk about in a moment. I think in that light, because we acknowledged the enormity of the trauma that attends a death in these state-sanctioned situations. And when we talk about state, we're really reflexive of the fact that there are 
non-state actors playing, so this is G4S, TNT, all of these private contractors to which, if you like, state violence is outsourced and reproduced. So there's an assemblage there of state and non-state actors in um, deathscapes. But in that frame of taking into account the um, deeply felt effective dimensions of what had transpired in the context of a death, we decided to, to, to construct the courtyard. And I think Savendi can really speak to the courtyard and what drove it. Um, so when we um, first started on the site, we actually had a, a, a brief, um, 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 you know, showing, uh, for want of a better word, we put it to some uh, colleagues and friends, mo mostly from um, the Indigenous um, uh, Centre at, at Curtin University where I work. And one of the things that struck us profoundly um, in that first showing was um, the the way in which the the emotion the you know people were so impacted by the stories and one of somebody actually said to me at at the end of that first session um, what what do you you know what do you do with these kinds of feelings these emotions and um it was something we we talked about as a team, and I I had this memory of um, being in the apartheid museum in Johannesburg some years before, and really going through that. Um, it's it's a very powerful site. Going going through the the museum, and um, there was there was one point at which I was standing before one of the tanks that had been used on people in street protests, uh, standing before this tank that was called a rhino and just being overwhelmed by the sight of that enormous tank uh, towering over me, and I felt um, overwhelmed, like I, you know, I I could not. I didn't know what I could do. I didn't know. I didn't know what to do, and I just saw this um, door saying "exit to the courtyard." The courtyard, and I went and sat in this space, which was a, a beautiful, restful space, um, just to reflect and to, um, you know, uh, to try and try and actually process what I was feeling, to grieve. And we tried in our site to kind of reproduce this notion of the courtyard um, because the whole, the sort of organizing metaphor of deathscapes, of the deathscape site is actually a series of rooms. We, we thought of it as a series of rooms. And the, um, the courtyard was this space that interrupted a kind of linear uh, academic telling narration of, um, you know, these uh, deaths in custody stories that actually interrupted that and allowed for a space that was outside that kind of analysis that was a space of emotion. So um, that that was the significance of the courtyard for us. It remind, reminds me of one of the most um, interesting setup, let's say, for one of the forensic architecture investigations, the death of Mr. Augustus in uh, in Chicago, 
and how Forensic Architecture had collaborated with the Invisible Institute in South Chicago to be able to present this piece. And the, it was supposed to be shown at the Chicago Biennale in the very center of Chicago in like a, an art institution and in a very sort of dry, um, not very caring infrastructure, let's say. And so the Invisible Institute, instead of that, brought it back to their, to their um, building uh, build little tables to be able to, um, I guess, to be able to follow this investigation and then offered to talk with people who had just been seeing it and maybe share a tea or something like that. I mean, there, there was a whole apparatus that had been created by the Invisible Institute in a way that I feel was very, very, yeah, respectful and caring that I, I feel I, I find also in your courtyard, which, which of course, is on a website. So on a website, you, you never really know in which spatial circumstances uh, people are uh, confronted to, to those investigations. So I, I don't know. I mean, as an architect, I, of course, can only appreciate the sort of spatial metaphor of the courtyard. as a, And, and I, I think I know uh, which one you're referring to, uh, Sivandrini, in the Apartheid Museum as well, uh, which is, yeah, is, is problematic in many ways, I think, this museum. But, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I wanted to, as, as you said, Joseph, I think uh, uh, we, can, we can maybe talk a little bit more about this effective... Uh, forms uh, you are using as well. I mean, you, you said like poetry, verbal testimonies, art. Uh, could, you, could you perhaps talk about this, this dimension as well of uh, testimonies? Yeah, b b before we do, and it's actually um, thematically connected to, to, to this question you're asking, Leopold, and, and that is, for those who aren't familiar with the site, there's an icon for the courtyard as you scroll down through the particular case studies. And again, what we were reflexive of was that we weren't pitching this to an academic audience. We were aware that families, communities, relatives, and people who'd been touched by precisely this uh, sort of state violence would be reading it. And there would be triggers, of course, in having to deal with the enormity of the violence that uh, is being unfolded in those uh, stories. So there are, as Savendi said, those exit points in there precisely to accommodate. And as, as Savendi said too, I mean, we did, and you'll appreciate this as an architect, we actually envisaged the, the infrastructure of um, deathscapes in an architectonic manner. As Savendi was saying, with rooms, with spaces and different sorts of spaces that accommodate different sorts of stories. So it's not homogeneous. And one way in which it's not homogeneous is precisely because we refused that strictly academic narration uh, or quantification of, um, of, of, of deaths and deaths in custody. And the way in which we've amplified the disruption of that objectifying academic discourse and the way in which we've tried to speak to um, people outside of academia, to communities, to families, is through the invocation, if you like, the in installation within those rooms of poetry, of testimonies, and of artwork that speaks different languages to verbal text. So really it's multimedia in a sense of trying to democratise and horizontalise accessibility to these really um, grave uh, stories that um, produce such an impact. And we, we think the impact 
on the one hand, is brought into focus by the artworks, but on the other hand, the impact is also mitigated in a, in a healing sense by communities who have given us their artwork as a way of speaking back to state violence and, and demonstrating, um, if you like, uh, um, acts, aesthetic creative acts of resistance against state violence. And um, if I can just add something there, we were also very aware that um, communities, both indigenous communities and and, uh, refugee uh, communities and activists had always used art and used the aesthetic as their means of resistance. Uh, And we wanted to bring that, you know, into the site. And again, this was, um, you know, our our way of um, distancing ourselves from modes of um, social scientific analysis. We actually wanted to mobilize uh, the aesthetic and amplify the aesthetic uh, on the site. And I think I can add at this point that this was uh, where we also encountered a lot of um, resistance and opposition from some of the um, academic audiences who who viewed the site um, quite um, quite a degree of hostility actually in a couple of instances um, to these to the uh, bringing of the aesthetic into the site and and we think that there was quite a lot operating here. One of the things that we thought was um, that it was it was partly also because there's such a disavowal of um, the aesthetic and the figurative in modes of social scientific analysis that, um, you know, see themselves as uh, objective, detached, etc., when in fact they're not. Um, And uh, so there, there was this kind of resistance to this being brought into... Um, uh, our analysis, but uh, throughout the Deadscape site, this is something we've tried to do. When Joseph mentioned before that we had we had um, attended inquests, our team attended inquests, and we would send back daily dispatches from uh, coronial inquests, precisely because there's so much that happens in an inquest that does not make it into an official report or an inquiry. Uh, and we were very aware that um, families and communities who were attending these events were using the aesthetic, uh, using art, using voice, using performance as a way of uh, fighting back to the, um, you know, to the to the to the law, and the way the, uh, that it was being uh, mobilized in these inquests. Uh, and in fact, to, to the degree that they mobilised massive canvases, banners, they draped them over the steps so that when you go up the steps to go into the coronial inquest, you have to walk over their banners calling for justice, for example, with uh, an image of the, the loved one who's been killed by the state in, in custody. So the aesthetic really is such a powerful way of disrupting the invisibilization by the state and their rendering into just another legal category or statistic yeah and talk, talking more about that i think I'm, i might invert my two uh, final questions because i think it makes more sense this way um because you know we already mentioned um the life and death of uh, mr ward uh, that we are um 
talking at length about uh, with uh, Jane Turner in in the current issue. I mean, in the issue forty four of the Phenomenalist magazine, um, which is one of the investigation you you've conducted, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and Mr. Ward himself uh, was uh, an indigenous um, leader, but also an artist, which again like brings us back to to the question of art and how he, his art and his life. I mean, that's why I'm saying his life and death, because of course uh, uh, there would be a way to approach investigating the horrendous events, punctual events of his death as like the beginning and the end of the story when actually of course it is uh in many ways one event that of course ended his life but also is followed by um many other aspects regarding his community and his nation um but so could we perhaps talk a little bit more about this specific um investigation uh and and how it very much sort of uh embody everything we've been talking about so far i mean including again like art but i'm, I'm thinking of that particular drawing uh that is incredibly powerful in the way it manages in just a little bit of color and lines to express exactly what you were talking about joseph about the the sort of um double violence of the settler state for uh, the sort of internal internal violence against indigenous people and 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 exter external also i'm not sure that's quite the right word uh towards um people trying to reach uh the the shore of that continent that is australia um anyway that's me sort of thinking out loud right now but uh could yeah could you could you perhaps Tell us more about everything we've talked about so far, but in relationship to the life and death of Mr. Ward. Yes, so um, the painting that you refer to um, was actually the beginning and the center of our analysis of the death of Mr. Ward. Um, and um, as your Listeners will know if they've if they've read um, the the article by Jan. Uh, Mr. Ward was um, arrested uh, by police out out just outside his um, community, and he was um, uh, held overnight. And then he was put in a prison van, uh, contracted you know, uh, run by a private prison contractor. Uh, and driven across the desert to jail. And in the course of this um, drive, um, it transpired that the, the prison van was um, uh, did not have air conditioning. He was exposed to horrific heat and suffocation. And um, when uh, they reached the destination, they found that Mr. Ward had, um, had, had died in the course of this uh, uh, being transported across the desert. And uh, it was something that Mr. Ward's family actually wanted us to talk about uh, in the case study, you know, the way in which he had been um, um, terribly burnt 
in, in the course of this um, uh, transport, um, being transported across the desert. So the painting actually shows um, a van traveling across a road, uh, cutting across um, country, and the, the hands, two black hands sort of grasping at the walls of a cage. And so our reading of this artwork was that it was talking about the, Mr., the death of Mr. Ward, but also talking about the encaging of country itself through um, this carving of a road through the landscape, uh, the road through which people were removed from country, taken to prison, also the way in which um, country was being carved up. Um, Mr. Ward's traditional lands had been used as a missile base. They'd been part of the, um, the research that was con- con- conducted by Britain and Australia into uh, um, atomic um, bombs. The country also has been used uh, uh, as a detention centre, one of the most notorious detention centres against refugees. So we felt that all of this um, was actually in that artwork. Um, and this was the centre of the kinds of connections we were trying to make in Mr. Ward's story, not only um, laterally, you know, when you talk about the, the connections to um, immigration detention, to uh, um, atomic uh, research and so on, but also historically um, the road uh, was a means by which people were transported to, um, to prison islands such as Rottnest Island. And I know that um, Michel Bouy, um did write something for, for your journal on, on Rottnest Island prison. Um, so the, these all of these, we were trying to uh, use that artwork to connect all of these different um, um, threads of, um, you know, um, the, to the death of Mr. Ward. So that, that became the way that we told um, the story. It, it, it works really as, as another language by which to tell stories and, and languages that are coming from communities impacted directly by the violence rather than our telling the story of their story. So it, the, the artworks really function as community voices speaking back to state violence and self-representing on their own terms rather than being spoken for. Uh, you know, and there were intense, as Savendi said, consultation processes about how community wanted represented, what was being represented there. And um, Savendi, I think you can talk about how um, Mr. Ward's community specifically wanted his artwork, his glass artworks represented in the site. Yes, so um, Jan Turner actually um, took, you know, when we, when we were working on this particular case study, she took uh, her computer back to Mr. Ward's community and she showed them the work that we were doing. And um, they wanted certain things done. So they wanted, for example, us to show a particular uh, photograph of Mr. Ward. And in general, you do not show images of the dead. Um, it, it's, you know, one of one of the tenets really of... Um, how you re- 
how you tell these stories that you do not show images of the dead. But they actually wanted us to show this image of Mr. Ward holding up this particular glass seal um, that he had done. And the other thing about, you know, the, the, the exchange, the telling of the way in which we tried to tell their story, drawing on what they had told us, but then, the, you know, the way that they in turn used our telling, I think I can give an example of that, in that when um, um, the families and the communities saw um, the names, you know, we begin the case study with a list of other names of um, uh, people from Mr. Ward's community who had also died in custody. And when they uh, were shown this on the site where we, uh, you know, give this list of names and, um, uh, you know, a link to each of those stories, the community sent out for members of those, uh, the families of those people who had died, asked them to come and cry with them, come and mourn with them, as the as the site was being explored by the family, and this is this is one of the most moving, um, you know, for us, um, one of the most moving um, instances of how the site has been used by the communities for whom it has been, uh, you know, uh, f who have been at the center of our of our doing this work, the way in which it has in turn been used been useful and important for them and it's been a learning tool for them in the in ways that they can actually show images on the site to their to their young ones um, as a way of um, you know um, bringing these histories back and learning you know in some instances learning these histories through the site so it's really been this uh, process of intense um, exchange and collaboration and amplification, I think, with some of the um, some of the case studies we have done. And I just want to add one more thing um, to when we were talking about the, spa the spatial kind of metaphors that have informed the site. Many of the um, case studies feature these, uh, what we call walls of uh, memory, and they're just, um, you know, uh, just a whole wall of um, uh, memorials and shrines that have been set up by communities to commu to remember those who have died. And I think the, the walls, are actually, those walls of memory are actually, um, like the courtyard, they're spaces that, you know, create... Um, opportunities, openings for, for mourning and, and uh, remembrance and resistance. Thank you very much. Um, as, a, as a last question, I, I'm com coming back to the to Deathscape as a, as a whole project. Um, I think, you know, Joseph, you explained very well why it made total sense to simultaneously um, um, stand in solidarity with uh, 
the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, fight for sovereignty, meanwhile also um, being in solidarity with the um, struggle of asylum seekers, whether in Australia or somewhere else, and, and actually in North America, quite often we're talking about essentially the same people, like indigenous people who are displaced and end up as... Uh, um, as uh, as economic uh, migrants, for lack of a better word, uh, or, or and and so I think and you know reading Harsha Walia's work, uh, I think we we're all acutely aware of why it makes total sense to um, simultaneously do that. But perhaps one aspect of Dayscape's work we could pr- talk a little bit more about is the deliberateness in which you are talking about death in detention, um, which I think is quite also, um, like, it is, is an incredibly uh, um, urgent topic and, and condition uh, in, in the specific context of Australia as well. Um, but could we perhaps talk about it and, 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 and also whether, whether or not you maybe find um find yourself in the in the footpath of uh, of abolitionist uh, um, activists who, who also are paving the way for a future without where detention no longer exists to begin with yeah we, we could say you know one thing straight off the bat leopold and that is that um the connection between sovereign, the nexus, if you like, between sovereignty, indigenous deaths in custody, and deaths at the border, is not our invention. Um, you know, we really uh, followed in the footsteps of um, someone who was extraordinarily powerful in articulating that nexus as a lived practice, and that was Uncle Ray Jackson, the late Uncle Ray Jackson, who was former president of the um, Indigenous Social Justice Association. And the reason we mention that is that he saw an absolutely inextricable connection between refugees and asylum seekers being denied hospitality and entrance into the settler state and his absolute stand on unceded sovereignty and the way in which he would extend hospitality, welcome to asylum seekers and to refugees, precisely as a continuous assertion of his unceded sovereignty and the unceded sovereignty of his people. So there are many, Tony Birch, for example, another Indigenous leader, they see that nexus as absolutely instrumental in challenging the authority and the legitimacy of the the nation uh, state. In terms of um, abolition, we absolutely align with um, the abolitionists because we actually see the carceral system, the criminal justice system and various institutions of settler law across the different settler states as actually reproducing the serial state violence of deaths in custody as a machinic effect of that process of what Patrick Wolfe would call the process of Indigenous elimination, if you like. So it's a structural outcome. And I think what we try to disrupt throughout the... um, Deathscapes project is the notion that law is the answer, that more policing is the answer, that the very institution of criminal justice is is the answer. These are actually state-run enterprises that have got deep roots 
in the foundational violence of colonialism, empire and raciality. So to actually turn to those state institutions as a solution is actually to go down a path of reproducing the state violence at another order, in another sort of form, or to you know, participate, if you like, in reformist tactics that patch up bits, but the foundational violence continues to reproduce itself. So there's a strong alignment between um, the Deathscape's position and the abolitionists. And Savendi and I basically articulate that as, as, as well we can in the afterword of the Deathscape's book that we co-edited after uh, we finished the Deathscape's project. So we, we call that transformative justice and it doesn't look to the state or to set the law as a way of um, stopping state violence uh, and uh, deaths in custody, either at the border or um, in, in the detention cells. So, Vandranisa, the, the concluding word is, is for you. <laughs> oh, well, um, l let me just say this, uh, that um, I, I, I'm not sure if people are aware that, um, you know, the, death, the book... Uh, whose title Joseph's going to help me with because I can't remember it. But um, the, the, the book uh, Mapping Deathscapes um, just came out this year. And um, it's, it, it really is complementary in a sense to the site. It, it doesn't reproduce what's in the site, but it's a set of commentaries and, and elaborations and uh, of the work that is on the site. And um, so I would, uh, I, I think we, we may not have mentioned this when, when we wrote to you a little uh, blurb about the piece, but I, I would really suggest that if people wanted to know more about um, the Deadscapes project, they would, they would go and look at uh, the book as well as um, the site. Well, thank you very much to both of you. Perhaps we can, uh, I'm, on, I'm on the Deathscape about page to perhaps uh, cite like everybody who worked on it. So, uh, uh, of course, you two as chief investigators and Marianne Franklin and Jonathan Inda as partner investigators. Michelle Brie, we already cited. Uh, Pilar Cassat, Beatrice Mald Maldonado, Eman Quader. Sharon Dev Singh, uh, Dr. Raed Yacoub uh, as researcher and Dean Chan as a project manager. Um, so thanks, thanks again very, very much. Again, like I very, very much invite anyone to also read uh, the interview we made with uh, Jan Turner about uh, the life and death of Mr. Ward in our um, uh, 44th Funambulist issue also because Suvendrini actually she she has not really described what had happened to Mr. Ward as a way you had done I think it was too painful for her to actually recount those events so I think it's also important to have those different degrees of proximity with uh, Mr. Ward himself to also be able to understand a little bit better so I yeah, really see those two conversations are complementary um, but uh, yeah, thanks again very, very much for your time and uh, for being part of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.